there have uh, been some very strange philosophers, teachers in history. We have a very good biographical sketch of many of the ancient philosophers in Greece, for instance, better than almost anywhere else in the world. And one of those philosophers that comes to mind is probably one that you have heard about. His name is Pythagoras. I think I first encountered him in about the ninth grade in a geometry class. He lived in the sixth century B.C. And he founded a mystical cult. He was very religious and he himself essentially was the leader of the cult and also the object and purpose of the cult. He is known, though, to us as a mathematician and a, um, a person who, for instance, through his math, gave us an understanding of the harmonic mean and harmonic progressions. He taught us to square numbers and uh, he also taught us to cube numbers. He was a great mathematician, though he certainly was a strange, strange person. Here are some of his ideas that maybe you haven't heard about, fortunately, but they have come down to us. He says, and he doesn't give a reason, abstain from beans. He didn't believe in beans. He says, do not pick up what is fallen and I really don't know the logic of that, though he was great at logic. He also says, when you put on your socks, make sure that you start with the right foot. Always put the sock first on the right foot. And all of his followers followed these very carefully, uh, these injunctions. Now, Paul, the apostle, when he is writing in 1 Thessalonians, actually has some of these philosophers, teachers in mind. He is aware, as a, as a uh, wonderfully educated uh, man, both in Judaism and in the Hellenistic world, he's very much aware of these philosophers as were the people in um, Thessalonica, when he came to this town, this Macedonian town, maybe more than a town, uh, a fairly good-sized settlement, an important uh, settlement on the road to Rome, uh, they were aware of their own history and no doubt very proud of it. And so the apostle then begins to, to um, address these believers in Thessalonica, and he does so from a standpoint or background of these philosophers. I think somebody's got their cell phone on. <laughs> and uh, uh, so anyway, the, the philosophers that Paul is talking about uh, included no doubt Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, but he may have had in mind this strange guy called Pythagoras. Paul and his companions then, Silas and Timothy, had founded the church in Thessalonica. The church was Macedonian and Gentile in character, and Paul wanted to contrast his purpose and manner of life with the history that they uh, had shared in, in their own lives as Macedonians and Greeks. Now, Paul contrasts his life with what you will find 
in the life of some of these teachers. And maybe I have to to uh, mention a few things about some of these teachers. They were sometimes very difficult and very demanding. They could berate you. Almost always they were the main subject or purpose uh, of attention. And so from a philosophical standpoint and from a teaching standpoint, these people have been used to that kind of teacher. Paul is going to contrast his life with what they had known from their history. And the text, of course, that I have in mind is from Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now, you had read to you verses 1 through 8. There is a nice little Greek word called pericope, which means to cut off or to separate. And uh, passages of Scripture are called by scholars pericopes. Verses 1 through 8 does not constitute the whole pericope. It goes to verse 13. So I will be considering verses 1 through 13 in the text. And when you begin to read this chapter, you do see that Paul is sharing his life. He's telling them in almost an apologetic way what kind of person he is and what he's driven to do and the kind of uh, life that he advocates in their midst. And he, too, has lived that life and does not want to burden them, for instance, even for uh, his own support. So there are a few things to note about this passage. It has to do with the way the passage is laid out, and it's quite interesting. If you read then verses 1 through 13, you begin to see the whole text. The second thing I want you to notice about this is verse 12. In verse 12, you actually find the purpose of the text. And I'm going to read it at this point, though I'll read it uh, later on. He says this. He says that he has come to encourage them and to comfort them, and to urge them to live lives worthy of God. That is his purpose. He says, my manner of life among you has been for the purpose to encourage you to live a life that is worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Encouraging and comforting and urging then in his ministry is for a purpose. It reaches a goal. He wants to see them live a certain kind of lifestyle. And um, what is interesting about this is that the purpose of a thing is more important than almost any other aspect of what something is. More about that in a moment. The passage also has four sections, and each section begins with a transitional word, or the transitional word for. In Greek, it is gar. It's a little simple word. For. Four times you will see the word F-O-R. And it tells you that this is a subsection in the larger section. And what is also interesting as you look at the passage of Scripture, in all of these subsections in each one, the word gospel appears. So the word gospel appears in each section that would mean four times. Now, uh, looking at the structure of this, the first observation that I want to make and underscore this is his goal. Urging you to live lives worthy of God. That is his purpose. 
And of course, I would not be preaching this sermon if I would not be doing the same, urging that upon all of us, urging us to live lives worthy of God. Now, remember this about the word purpose. I've already alluded to it. The purpose of the thing is the most important aspect of any kind of project, for instance. Let's say that I'm down at the manse and I want to come to the church. It's on the other end of the 30 acres. So I want to get from point A to point B. Now, how am I going to get here? Well, I probably am going to do two things because my goal is to get to the church and it's very close by. So I'm either going to drive my car up or walk. I am not going to take a boat and I'm not going to take a plane. You see, the goal that I have to reach a destination nearby determines the means. Same thing about a building. If I'm building a doghouse, I may use, well, plywood, nothing else. I probably won't put any heat in it. But if I'm building a home, I'm going to put heat in it and make it a much more substantial structure. So what is the purpose of a thing? If I'm going to travel to China, I suspect that I have two options. I can go by boat, as they did in the old days, or I can fly a plane. Some of you go to China regularly. So I don't know of any other way. You don't plan to drive and you don't plan to walk. And the reason is that your purpose is to get to China, but since it is a long way off, you then use a method that will cut down the time and that will get you there. Now, so the goal of a thing is very important. So the Apostle Paul here in this passage of Scripture is concerned with this goal. Everything in this text then in some way is going to support that, is going to try to help us understand not only what the goal is, but to attain it. And so his goal is that we might live lives worthy of the living God. Now you'll notice in the text too in verse 12 that we are called into the manner of life that we have. The word calling in the New Testament is a word that means more than just an invitation or, or to, to, to uh, give you uh, a calling of some sort to come to me or come close. It includes also the idea of being able to persuade you inwardly to do this. So we have been called by the Spirit of God into the kingdom of God. And notice he also says we have been called not only into his kingdom, but to share in his glory. Life with God then is rooted in God's gracious, efficacious calling. It is also true that in God's purpose to bring us to participate in his life, he calls us, but he also invites us to share the blessings that we, that we have with others. It is interesting that the two great commandments that was read to you in the gospel lesson or alluded to had to do with to love God and love neighbor. And so the Apostle Paul has both in mind. And you know, we love to call people or invite people into our homes, don't we? Uh, I've noticed that a lot of times when a person invites me to their home, uh, they want to share the bounty that they have 
experienced in life and to share their home just and, and their heart and their hospitality. Well, God indeed in Christ does that. He invites us into his heavenly kingdom. Therefore, then, he says, because we have this invitation to share in his life and hospitality, we ought to live a certain way. That underscores that we have that open invitation and experience of the living God uh, through Jesus Christ. So Paul's concern then is with godly living, obeying his will and loving his commands. Now I want you to also notice then that if the end is that, what is the means? Paul doesn't dwell too much on the means here in the gospel. He does so later in this letter. Uh, he mentions the word gospel four times, but he doesn't deal too much with its content. Let me flesh that out just for a moment. It's quite clear what Paul means by the gospel. He doesn't mean what a lot of modern-day people mean by the gospel. We, we attach the word gospel to almost everything and in every movement, and sometimes in Christian circles. We talk about uh, liberation gospel or liberation theology. We talk about feminist gospel or feminist theology. None of those things Paul has in mind. In fact, he would think it would be a violation to use it in that way. When Paul talks about the gospel, he actually has a very technical understanding of what it is. And it consists of two things. It consists of two things. It consists, first of all, of the person of Jesus Christ. He is the content of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And the gospel, by its very nature, is good news from another world. It cannot arise out of our environment in this world. The gospel came, contains nothing of our response to God. It's always God's response to us. We respond to the gospel. In fact, that's what he's wanting us to do, to live a life worthy of God. But the gospel itself is something else. It is the way that we are brought to God, and it is through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the gospel story is that God became man and dwelt among us. Furthermore, in the gospel, in the gospel, it includes one other thing or one other item. And that is the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His works, as the older theologians used to call it. In other words, the gospel consists of the person and work of Christ. It consists of no human response. It calls for a response. It calls for justice in society. It calls for many things. But the gospel, technically in Paul's language, is a message from another world that is the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. That is the means. That's how God calls us into his kingdom, that we might share his glory. Now, it's two things at the same time. It's very narrow, admittedly. And that is one of the things that our contemporaries despise about original Christianity. It's very narrow because it's associated wholly with the person of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, it's absolutely sublime and beautiful. There used to be a personage, and uh, you will tell me his name when I finish. I have part of it in my head. 
who used to be on the television years ago, and he talked about the greatest story ever told. Well, of course, it is the greatest story ever told. It has to do with the very essence and fulfillment of our lives. And so the end that we might share God's kingdom and God's glory has a means, and it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the gospel, God has done something for us that we would not do for ourselves. And if I understand the New Testament, we cannot do for ourselves. It is something that God does for us. It is good news. Now, that is a a marvelous, marvelous, it seems to me, means to say the least. And we share in that means. And the third point is very simple. Since we share life with God... It is a full and free gift through his son, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, while the gospel is free, it is also terribly costly. But you don't pay the cost. The gospel costs our Lord Jesus Christ his life, everything. He spent entirely all that he was as a human being to secure our salvation. Now, Paul keeps that that model in his head all of his life. God freely gave himself for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Freely and fully. He never deviates from that thought throughout everything that he ever wrote. It's here in his mind. It is a pattern. It is what God has done for us. Now, his only question is, what should you do or how should you respond in return? That's the only question. Well, if the gospel is true, then your response has to be to receive it by faith. It is part of the reality of the universe. It is part of God's reality. It is not only good news, but is in fact true. And so we respond to it in faith. But also we respond to it in commitment and intensity. The Apostle Paul, if you read through this, is trying to demonstrate to them how committed he is to them for the sake of the gospel. He says, I I didn't even ask you to support me. I supported myself. I didn't come to you, for instance, like the former teachers that you know in your history, overbearing and demanding and manipulative. I came to you and I spent myself upon you. In other words, in the language of John Wesley, the Apostle Paul is willing to spend and to be spent for the gospel of Christ. The question then is, will you likewise be willing to spend and to be spent concerning the gospel of Christ? If Christ gave himself to us and he gave his all, And if the Apostle Paul sees his manner of life to follow that, then what kind of person should we be? And it is, too, that we must be willing to spend and to be spent in the cause of Christ. That is the manner that we are to live. Now, it's interesting about the church. The Apostle Paul gave himself over and over to these churches and wholly to these churches. They were little struggling communities that were persecuted. 
It didn't look like they would mount to a hill of beans. Pardon, Pythagoras. Didn't look like they would amount to a hill of beans. Because they were small, struggling communities. It didn't seem like they should at all ever succeed in a world where there were all of these religious expressions and many of them quite dominant. And in Rome was the emperor himself who demanded worship. He could let you have your religion, but you almost also must include him as part of your religious devotion. And here are these Christian communities that are exclusively focused upon the true and the living God, as he says in chapter 1 and not upon these things. He wants you to be wholly dedicated to the gospel of Christ because it is through the gospel that we have an entrance into the divine. So what manner of person ought you to be? Well, if this is the end, then the means is assured that we are to commit our way unto the Lord and with such intensity that we will persevere through every opposition and persecution that arises to us. That's what Paul does. Now, you know, the, the idea of commitment and intensity are very difficult in the modern world. We have difficulty committing ourselves to almost anything for any length of time. Think of it. One of the reasons that we have the divorce rate we do is because of commitment. It's very difficult to commit yourself to having children in some cases. Some of you, not so at all. But many young couples have very difficult time committing themselves to having children. It's very difficult to commit yourself to a service organization in the community. Almost all of them are dying off. I don't know whether you know that or not. Those, those service institutions in the community that indeed helped the community and made it a better place, provided enhancements for all of us to enjoy, many of those are dying off. I told you about meeting with the Optimus Club, or at least they co-opted me in the Ramada Inn. I didn't even know they were the Optimus Club, two old men. <laughs> and they wanted me to be president on the spot. Well, I had to decline, I couldn't commit. <laughs> But these service clubs are really not what they used to be. It's difficult to find people that will commit themselves to the public good. We want someone else to do it for us. So commitment is a difficult thing. Moreover, a sociologist at Baylor University has studied the whole idea of intensity, particularly religious intensity. Now, he finds, Rodney Stark, he finds this. Number one, that those who most believe and truly believe are most committed. You have to, in fact, believe something before you will commit yourself. But the problem, he says, is that even after you believe something and commit yourself to it, it is the fact that it is difficult to maintain intensity. It is rooted in the fickleness of human nature. We are up and down, up and down, up and down in everything we do. Now, that's to be expected to some extent. I never get overly concerned about this pattern in anyone's life, or I really don't get that concern over it in my life. It's just part of the psychology of being human. But we must always be challenged to return to our first love and to commit our way 
to the Lord and to his cause. And so the Apostle Paul says, you should follow my manner of life and commit your way to this end and to these means so that this struggling community might truly be the presence of God for those around you. I mentioned Pythagoras at the beginning. A strange man. I, I, I have uh, tried to read as much as I can find about him. Uh, the other intriguing contemporary of his was Heraclitus. And since he only has 128 fragments, I've read all of those, not much to read. But a truly intriguing man, a seminal thinker, even though he was as strange as anyone could be. Pythagoras was committed, and he demanded total intensity from his followers. Now, if there ever was a committed person, it surely is the Apostle Paul. Historians look at Paul's life, and many of them have concluded that Paul is the founder of Christianity, not Jesus. He seems to be so dominant and so intense, and he is. But here's the difference. He treated those that he ministered to as a father to children. And he must have had a good father and a good mother because his parental image that he continually invokes is always of gentleness and of encouragement. And so he invokes that imagery to get them to do the same thing. He uses the word encouragement, which means to draw, draw alongside of. I've drawn alongside of you. I don't ask you to pull the cart by yourself. I'm pulling it too. More than you all. I pull the load, but you also have to share in it. What a wonderful introduction, if you will, Paul gave to those new believers in Christ as to what the Christian life is. And so, therefore, we are to commit our way to the Lord that we might love his will and his way and his commands. They are not burdensome. And that we might love his church and its mission and its work. Let us then follow in the footpath of this great apostle that we might be faithful to the gospel in our day. Amen.